and welcome to the board game Dojo, the podcast where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric. Thank you so much for being here today, listening to our podcast, taking time out of your day to hang out with us. It's our second podcast of the week, which means that today is a scholarship day, a day to learn about something new from a research angle. And today, excitingly, is a listener request episode. Thank you to Sam from Board Game Duel for the topic today. He is part of an excellent podcast and YouTube channel, and I will leave a link to it below. I'm not getting paid to say that or anything, just trying to spread some positivity for another podcast, and he's helped me learn lots of games online, some of which I've gotten to tell you about on here. If you want to request a topic, you can let us know at Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at the BG Dojo or Instagram at BoardGameDojo. Even if you just want to say hi, seriously, send us a message. We love hearing from you and striking up conversations. And now, grab your coffees or your favorite caffeinated beverage, whatever that may be, a notebook, and a writing utensil, because class is now in session. Welcome back, welcome back. Hope you all enjoyed your week's Does anyone know where going down the rabbit hole comes from? Yeah, I think I heard it. Alice in Wonderland. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I didn't like the Disney movie at all. Is it just me? I don't know. It seemed like friends really liked it, but man, I thought it was too weird. But here I am talking about the three-body problem in other sci-fi books as being completely philosophical and great. I don't know. I never purported to make sense. But books are actually a great place to begin today's talk. Because today, we are talking about parasocial relationships. And parasocial relationships are one of those things that, while researching it, you can go down so many rabbit holes. There's so many connections between parasocial relationships and basically anything. If you go on YouTube and just search parasocial relationships, you'll get TED Talks, both from adults and youth. You'll get videos on FTX and videos like, influencers don't care if you go broke. You have videos decrying parasocial relationships, but then you have videos saying they're amazing and saved people from loneliness. It's a double-edged sword, really, to have a topic be so widely intriguing to so many people. On the one hand, I love it. I love people being interested in psychology. I love people making videos that get people talking about psychology. Uh, But then you have the other side of the sword, which has people who might not do the best research, or it's very pointed and cherry-picked stuff, or worse, you have your armchair psychologists. So today, we are going to condense this information into a lecture. I intentionally did sponsored content last week and this lecture this week because there is quite a bit of overlap in certain instances. So by doing sponsored content last week, we can just gloss over those today. By the end of today's lecture, I hope that you can understand what parasocial relationships are and what they definitely aren't, how and why we form them, and some benefits and drawbacks to them. We are then going to go over two groups of people in which people form parasocial relationships with and talk about how it affects their industries. I'll tell you that one of them is that we will be talking about podcasters, but the other I'm going to keep a secret for now. I'm going to try my best as well to not go down rabbit holes, but I do not promise anything. So let's begin by answering what is a parasocial relationship? Parasocial relationships are psychological associations that media users build unilaterally with media characters or celebrities. These relationships form their feeling of intimacy with media characters, and their feelings mirror a real social relationship. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in that definition. First off, parasocial relationships can be with a real-life person or a fictional one. Now, a lot of research will focus on only one of these types, like they'll only research people who make parasocial relationships with book characters, or people who make parasocial relationships with celebrities. But for today, because I only have time for one lecture on this, I'm just going to combine them and say parasocial relationship research today. 
Another thing is that it is unilateral, meaning it is one way. The characters do not know the person exists, or at least any real degree, which we will talk about why that's important later. And finally, these feelings mirror a real social relationship. We feel feelings towards these characters. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm making that sound romantic. It doesn't necessarily have to be romantic, although it can be. Now, we don't necessarily know when the first parasocial relationship happened, but the term itself was coined in 1956 by Donald Horton and Richard Wool. The idea was that there was a relationship, which was decided by the audience, but the interaction was decided by the media personality. I'll rephrase it in a second. Now, what item do you think started entering homes around the 1950s in which might be a reason we start seeing these kinds of interactions? Yeah, TV. By 1955, TVs were in half of American homes. So it's a pretty nice line to go, ah, okay, we start seeing TVs, we start seeing more parasocial relationships. In Horton's idea, the people at home could watch the news and internally decide on if there was a relationship there or not. But it was the TV program that decided the content. Now, I want to be clear here that these were not the first parasocial relationships that happened. People were pretty mad when Sherlock Holmes died. People cared about him. Sorry, spoiler for a book more than 100 years old. Conan Doyle killed him so that he could concentrate on other things. But yeah, people were pretty upset that a character they had grown to love died. You also had radio, in which people could grow close with someone's voice on the other end, and we will talk about that a bit more when we talk about podcasters later. But TVs at least start to get the ball rolling on thinking about this. And then the ball stopped, and wouldn't be picked up again for almost 30 years. You see, Horton and his colleague Wool did some good research, but like a lot of good research, not a lot of people cared. That is, until a group of people started taking notice of the implications of it. Now, what group of people did I talk about last week? And I said, hey, I make fun of them from time to time, but we can thank them for developing a lot of psychological theories. Yeah, marketers. Marketers started to care in the 1980s, especially those in mass communication. Now, before we get into it more, I just want to clarify some terms I'm going to use because often online and in early parasocial relationship research, they are used synonymously. Parasocial interaction and parasocial relationships. Parasocial relationship we already talked about is more long-term, whereas a parasocial interaction is the actual sense when viewing or reading. There is a lot, and I mean a lot, of debate if you try to go any further than that, so I'm just going to leave it there. Let's get back to the marketers. They started asking, how can we get our audience to have parasocial interactions with our characters, our TV hosts, our news anchors? Is it a certain personality? Are there certain characteristics? They wanted to find out why people make these interactions so that they could make more of them. And more social psychologists wanted in as well on this research because it flew in the face of much of the research at the time. So let's get into it. Why do people form parasocial relationships? For this answer, I think it's actually simplest that we turn it over to one of my favorite branches in psychology, evolutionary psychology. You see, humans as a species, when talking evolutionarily, right, we want to survive. And what did humans figure out that so many other species did as well? It's the old adage. There's power in numbers. But more specifically, there's power in communities. There's a reason that we have built great civilizations and countries all over the world have large metropolises, metropoli, metropoli, hmm, metropolises I'm going with, where people cluster together. Humans have created rules to make sure that people work together, well, survive and thrive in communities. One place we can look at is religion. Say what you will about religion, it is a great snapshot of what societies from around the world value as important to succeed. Almost every religion in the world has some semblance of the golden rule. 
do unto others as you would have done unto you, right? Almost every religion has strict rules against murder, not honoring your neighbor, and committing atrocities against your fellow man, right? And this has been about survival. You need communities to take care of each other too. Why do you think godparents are a thing? If something were to happen to your parents, it's up to the community to raise the child, keep the offspring going. Actually, originally, godparents were the natural-born parents, and then they were like, wait, that's not what we wanted. That wasn't the point. It should be someone else. And then the second iteration of godparents ended up too frequently marrying their godchildren. So then again, they were like, no, no, that also wasn't the point, and kept having to make more laws forbidding people from marrying their godchildren. Anyway, sorry, rabbit hole. Let me just climb out of here real quick. Okay, so we as a species want to survive. Our monkey brains want to be part of a group. They want to get along with others. We call this the need to belong. Now, what would happen if you are excluded out of this group? You're sitting at home, all alone, for an extended period of time. You become what? Starts with an L. Yeah, lonely. You don't have a group at the moment. And what happens if you do have a group, but they exclude you for some reason? And they keep excluding you, calling you weird. You would have a low self-esteem. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Well, congratulations. You just figured out the main triggers of what makes people form parasocial relationships according to the parasocial compensation theory. This theory posits that people form parasocial relationships to make up for or compensate for the lack of real-life relationships. I think we saw this a lot during COVID, right? We were all stuck in our rooms, so we read books, watched too much YouTube, and formed parasocial relationships. Changing course, let's instead say that you found a group that actually cares about you. You find a great group of friends, really supportive, give you a shoulder to cry on, things of that nature. How do you feel around them? Safe? Maybe comfortable? Happy? Yeah, for sure. There's security there, and that's another reason people may form parasocial relationships. For example, and you might not remember him or were even aware of his existence based on where you're from and when you were born, but one study found this particular connection with Josh Groban fans. His singing voice made a lot of people feel safe. It was familiar and distinctive, like a parent's voice. And speaking of that, you get to our last theory, which is a parasocial attachment theory. Attachment theory is a theory that is based partly on how our primary caregivers raised us and connected with us, but different people have different attachment styles with others in their adult lives. There are four main types, anxious, avoidant, disorganized, and secure. You can tell that three of those sound bad and only one of those are good. Based on your attachment styles, which I'm not going to give you right now, but there are quizzes online, you may be more or less prone to creating parasocial relationships. Those who are avoidant don't need relationships to build self-esteem. You're okay on your own, so you're less likely to build them. But those who are anxious and need validation from others and kind of crave interaction and the feeling of belonging are much more likely to build parasocial relationships. Plus, if you're insecure, being in a parasocial relationship sounds much less stressful than a real in-person one. You can tell that this and parasocial compensation theory has quite a bit of overlap, and a lot of research actually won't specify one theory or the other, but will simply hone in on self-esteem or the need to belong. The key thing to really grasp here is that there are both positive and negative reasons why people create these relationships, and like we will see later, these can have both positive and negative consequences. But before we get there, let's figure out how we make these relationships. The first thing to note is that our monkey brains have not caught up with technology as of yet in this department. Our brains don't differentiate between someone talking to us on the screen or talking to us face-to-face -face physically. All it knows is that someone is talking to us and, hey, they are trying to form a relationship with us. Let's listen and try to build a rapport with them. This is actually pretty useful for us. Can you imagine if our brains didn't do this? Zoom wouldn't work at all. Look at COVID. We tried building and maintaining our relationships through Zoom and Skype. 
If our brain said, nope, I don't want to build a relationship with that person on the screen, it wouldn't have worked. This is actually called the effective bonding theory, and it postulates that humans are hardwired to react to any form of human-like communication, even if it's fictional. Because when we read a book, we are actually sad when the character is harmed, or actually feel the suspense when a character puts themselves in harm's way. Wait, don't go in there! Our brains determine that the situation is real, even if it is a fictional character or event. But why do our brains do this? Doesn't it know that I'm reading a book, or watching a movie, or listening to my favorite podcast? Sure, but this is where we get to something called a leaf. Spelled like bee leaf, but instead of a B-E at the beginning, it's an A if you want to look it up later. This is a fairly new idea put forward by Tamar Gendler in 2008. An alif is an automatic or habitual belief-like attitude, particularly one that is in tension with a person's explicit beliefs. It's basically a dissonance between your brain's logic side and your natural reactions. Take the movie Coco, a great movie, top three Pixar, and I will not be listening to any arguments at this time. I know it's a movie. I know the characters aren't real, and the family is not real, and I know all of that. But I cry 100% of the time, no matter how many times I watch the movie. My beliefs lead me to cry. Another example might be if you are visiting the Grand Canyon, and you go out on the glass walkway. Look that one up later. You look down, and it looks like you are hovering over the canyon. Your brain's logic side believes you are safe. It's sturdy, but you may belief you are in danger. So it's this difference that makes your brain both know that the characters you are meeting, the people you are watching or listening to, you know that they don't know you, but you belief that it is real and meaningful. And for many, it actually can be meaningful, because for many, parasocial relationships are something they create with role models. One form of this is called wishful identification, and psychologists have been studying this in people, especially adolescents and tweens, for years the idea behind it is that some people have the psychological desire to emulate a media personality. This is nothing new. Maybe the name you've never heard of before, but playing pretend that you are a famous person isn't. My friends and I, growing up playing baseball, used to pretend we batted like Ichiro Suzuki. We would do his whole warm-up routine at the plate, and then we would hit like him, which included his slap hit that is much more commonplace in Japanese baseball than American. Sorry for the non-sports fans out there. But people have done this with TV icons since TVs were here. But where wishful identification comes into parasocial relationships is the idea that those who identify with a character, connect with them, feel an emotional bond with them, are more likely to try to emulate them. And this can be one of the greatest benefits that come with parasocial relationships. If people find the right host or personality to emulate, it can create a great motivation to keep going and get better. Some studies show that having a parasocial relationship can help with identity formation and self-autonomy. And these same studies, sometimes in the same paragraph, bring up probably the biggest benefit for society of parasocial relationships, empathy. We as humans are generally empathetic creatures, but we are also flawed in that our thinking can be, shall we say, narrow. Once we are exposed to a situation, we learn about it and know about it going forward, but until then, we can be a bit closed-minded, some of us. And this is where parasocial relationships step in, by giving us an outlet for learning about different groups we can learn. And this is one of the many, 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 many reasons why representation is so important in board games, movies, TV shows, music, everything. By being placed in someone else's story, by seeing the world through their lens, we start feeling empathetic towards them. We care about those characters. 
Let me read you the exact quote from Bradley Bond's abstract of his work. Heterosexual participants viewed a fictional television series for 10 weeks depicting the outgroup, gay, characters, in which the outgroup attribute, sexuality, was accentuated or sanitized. Parasocial relationships with outgroup characters grew significantly over the course of the study, regardless of condition. White participants and participants who reported the strongest pretest prejudice experienced the most intense growth. Outgroup prejudice decreased significantly over time for participants in both experimental conditions. Now, I'm paraphrasing part of the discussion, but get this. The character in the show that people formed the biggest parasocial relationship with was the character who broke the fourth wall the most. And this combined with other studies suggests that breaking the fourth wall and directly addressing the audience can craft the illusion of a face-to-face interaction and thereby intensify parasocial relationship development. This makes me now wonder if people had more parasocial relationships with Deadpool than other superheroes. Hmm... Oh, sorry. Lost some thought there. But going back to the point, that's super important, right? The fact that having representation gives us a chance to empathize with someone not in our in-group, to care about their plights and problems, to start to understand them, is a huge part of why representation is so important. But there's another reason, too. People can identify with the characters, helping their self-esteem. Remember we said that one of the reasons people form parasocial relationships is because of low self-esteem and the need to belong. Well, parasocial relationships studies show, might help with that. When celebrities are seen to be like the person in some way, people can form parasocial relationships with them, especially if they have a desired trait, which can be a big thing like being rich or a smaller thing like dressing better. And a weird thing happens. When people form an attachment to them, they might see themselves as closer to their ideal selves. In one experiment, they ran a series of studies to see if low self-esteem people would find parasocial relationships self-enhancing. In study one, they found that low self-esteem people saw their favorite celebrities as very similar to their ideal selves. The more perceived similarity there was between the celebrity and the ideal self, the more low self-esteem people liked and empathized with that celebrity. Okay, we just talked about that, right? In study two, low self-esteem people primed with their favorite celebrity felt more similar to their ideal selves than low self-esteem people primed with a controlled celebrity. In study three, low self-esteem people primed with their favorite celebrity felt more similar to their ideal selves than low self-esteem people primed with a close relationship partner or a control celebrity, which they used Regis Philbin for. So what this is saying is that by thinking about the celebrity, and that celebrity being somewhat close to their ideal selves, it actually raised their own self-belief more than real social relationships. Now, is this completely generalizable? No, not at all. Social relationships absolutely can raise your self-esteem as well. What was interesting about the study in particular was just writing about your favorite celebrity for six minutes was enough to raise the participant's self-worth. This particular paper goes on to talk about self-worth in the context of needing to belong, but I actually think there's a more interesting angle to look at needing to belong. What Coart and Daniel Jr. call one-and-a-half-sided parasocial relationships. These are relationships formed by groups around a persona, where the persona does things like livestream and respond to the audience. Let me read you a paragraph that I thought made their point crystal clear. In the context of live streaming, viewers can communicate with the persona, the streamer, both synchronously and asynchronously through their live broadcasts and via social media. The various online tools and spaces utilized by live streamers have increased viewers' access to online personas in unprecedented ways. Previous generations of celebrity worshippers were relegated to content that was controlled by the media, like weekly programming and tabloid content. 
However, today, viewers can like and follow the social media pages that have content posted by the persona or their public relations team, join a social community via Discord, and see them interact live from their home or studio. While the traditional celebrities also have a social media presence, the sense of community and potential for engagement from live streaming media figures is much higher, contributing to high emotional engagement by the community and long-term tight-knit groups being formed around the persona. This is in stark contrast to traditional parasocial relationships, which are often discussed as fleeting and disposable. Viewers can also choose to actively participate or passively engage with the content and community when their favorite live streamers go live. So all of this means that there is more emotional engagement with not only the community that also likes this persona, but the persona themselves. We'll talk about this a bit later when it comes to podcasters, but this sense of community makes it fall somewhere in the middle of parasocial and social relationships. On the one hand, you have someone who is attached and forming a relationship with someone on the screen that doesn't really know them to a large extent, maybe nothing more than a username who likes their stuff. But then again, there is that interaction. You give them a super chat on a YouTube live stream and they say thanks to you. There is an interaction there. And then the community surrounding the persona gives you a sense of belonging. Take the Dice Tower, maybe not the celebrities that instantly come to mind, but I think there is a community there that is super consistent when it comes to live streaming. I have videos that every once in a while I'll throw onto a program called Board Game Breakfast, and so I'll go back and watch it later because it's always when I'm sleeping or a bad time for me that isn't in the morning in my time zone. But it's always the same group of people in the chat. They have built up a community there. There are inside jokes about the Dice Tower cast. The hosts call out some interesting comments in the live chat and thank any donations. And this whole engagement is this kind of, well, it's not completely unreciprocated, right? So maybe we need to change what we think about parasocial relationships to what they might mean today. Early studies seem to show that this creates a more tangible, more lasting relationship with the persona, raising trustworthiness and social bonds, much like we see in social relationships. But this can be a downside at the same time. We can say that it creates social bonds online, but this can cause problems too. For one thing, you want to attend these live streams and follow your favorite persona on social media to get this partial reciprocation, right? Well, studies repeatedly show that having these types of parasocial relationships are positively correlated with becoming completely addicted to social media. And that's pretty not great by itself, but it can completely go against everything that was the reason for the parasocial relationship in the first place. You might spend time on social media when you could be spending time making real social relationships. That's when these parasocial relationships get worrying. It's when people choose those parasocial relationships over meaningful, real-life ones. Studies have continued to show that parasocial relationships can lead to social isolation, loneliness, and anxiety. Wait, didn't we talk earlier about that parasocial relationships are formed because people are lonely and they don't want to be? Yeah, we did. But thinking about it, it makes perfect sense. As the line between parasocial relationship and social relationship starts to blur, oh, they said thanks for the supers chat, oh, they're going to be in the Discord later, it feels real. And we want to give time to them. So we say, no, I'm busy, can't go to the movies, I'm hanging out with someone else tonight and hang out in the live stream. But I want to address some other really serious points as well when it comes to influencers, and that's deviant behavior or toxic behavior. Studies have found that parasocial relationships can be detrimental if books or media portray toxic behavior as normal. One such study talks about the young adult genre often containing harmful tropes that exposes the audience to dysfunctional relationship behaviors, such as portraying abuse as romantic, normalizing slut-shaming, and fetishizing virginity. 
Because of the wishful identification we talked about earlier, people may try to replicate this behavior and it normalizes it. It can even happen with celebrities as well. When they do something that isn't right because we have grown attached to them, we might defend them like we would a friend. Or if they don't get in trouble for it, we might think, well, okay, if they can do it, I can do it too. Or in a slight twist on this, we might want to do this with a significant other. And if they don't want to, then it might ruin their relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to want to do everything together or else your relationship is ruined. But parasocial relationships can, in fact, hinder your romantic and social relationships if the parasocial relationship builds up an unrealistic expectation of what relationships are supposed to be. This could be anything from performing deviant acts to your partner or your partner just not being good enough in your eyes. And in turn, it might lead to the opposite of what we talked about earlier. It can lead to you not feeling good enough about your own self as well. Think of it as a cycle. You might feel lonely or isolated, so you start a parasocial relationship. This causes you to feel inflated, a little better, but it also gives you new expectations as to what relationships are supposed to be like, or what people are supposed to be like. You put them on a pedestal. Then you quickly realize that other people are not that. They are people that have flaws and can't afford all these fancy things, so you go back to your parasocial relationship because it's where you feel safe, and maybe now you're feeling even more isolated than you were before, and more reliant on your parasocial relationships. And this is a danger that can absolutely happen. I'm not trying to scare you or anything. I just want you to be aware of it. And something else that can happen is that when you start interacting with a celebrity that feels close, feels like your friend, feels trustworthy, well, you buy stuff from them. And that's where we get to what we talked about last week, right? Sponsored content. And holy smokes, is there a ton of overlap. And marketers are licking their chops. Studies show that followers who had established a strong parasocial relationship with the influencer reported lower evaluative persuasion knowledge, the system that we talked about last week. Furthermore, followers report enhanced purchase intentions and brand evaluations, especially when the posts contain advertising disclosures. Basically, you can know that the person is selling you something and just not care because you already have a relationship with them and trust them to give you good advice to buy something. And this works in an interesting way for influencers. The more interactions an influencer has, the higher the likelihood that people will form an attachment. Then, the greater the extent to which a consumer perceives a social media influencer's social media content as visually attractive, displaying sense of prestige, and exhibiting expertise, the more likely it is that a parasocial relationship will be established. But there's a catch, a threshold. Because influencers are seen as a grassroots movement, if you will. If they amass too many followers, then they lose the sense of closeness and relatability. Consumers find influencers that have a more modest or moderate amount of followers as more trustworthy, and so are therefore more likely to form a parasocial relationship with them, in turn leading to increased sellability. Hey, it wouldn't be a lecture if I didn't make a word up somewhere, right? And this is because the influencer is seen as less self-serving. And if they do what we talked about last week and give a proper disclosure, this goes up even more because people understand that even their friends might try to sell them something, but they just want them to be upfront about it. One study goes, parasocial relationships that are built upon cumulative information disclosure and in-depth understanding fortify the perceived authenticity while discounting the potential negative information pertaining to the social media influencer, thereby creating a positive bias in the evaluation of endorser motives, which eventually leads to greater purchase intention. So yeah, parasocial relationships can basically get rid of all of the negative biases people had towards being sold stuff that we talked about last week. So wait, Eric, you're telling me that people will buy stuff from influencers that they form a personal attachment to, but not if they're super popular. <sighs> this seems like such a waste. Isn't there a way that we could have someone become quite famous and be able to sell stuff? Because that would be a dream scenario. <clears> hmm. <throat> okay. 
There has to be a way. I'm just spitballing here. What if we could create an entity in which people could become fans? And you said that more interactions is good, right? So, okay, we have a chance for fans to meet them, but hmm, it's going to be a lottery to meet them. And um, you have an increased chance of winning the lottery if you buy more CDs. Yes, yes. So that makes money. And we will only hire people who are super attractive. But oh, different cultures find different things attractive, right? So what if we instead make them groups of singers? And we could have different styles in the group so that everyone has one person they are attracted to in the group. Ah, yes, this is good. Are you guys writing this down? This already exists? Oh, yeah. It's called K-pop. Now I know this is a worldwide phenomenon, and I have friends who are deep into K-pop. But yeah, it's psychologically fascinating seeing an industry that not only has parasocial relationships, but encourages them. And it's actually this that will lead to one of our last concepts of the day, parasocial love. You see, we can put so much of what we talked about today together in terms of K-pop fandom. K-pop has done a terrific job of employing the concept of parasocial relationship and doing everything to promote their creation. For one, like I talked about earlier, there is interaction. Fans can get the chance to meet them in concert, on Zoom calls, and this is something special, so you want to increase your chances of meeting your bias, which means buying more albums. But wait, there's more. The evolution of Bubble, in which fans can pay to have what looks like real chats with their favorite idols. The idols will send a blast text to everyone who has paid for the service, and the fans can message back. The layout and everything about it is supposed to look like a real chat. And finally, you have vlogs and live streams, chances to see your favorite groups and idols sharing their daily lives. It's a chance for the idols to show not only the glamour, but hardships and share personal stories about practice and maybe some problems they've encountered along the way. This last part some experts talk about has been the real changing factor, most notably VLive and Weverse, in which idols would post videos and people would translate them, meaning you could watch with subtitles. People from all over the world could now watch at a much more frequent rate. Wow, that was hard to say, meaning that they were getting more and more chances to interact with their favorite idols. And all of this basically has meant that the K-pop industry uses idols' lives as a mere commodity. Now, it is worth noting that most fans can be both K-pop fans and lead a normal daily life, just like people in other forms of parasocial relationships. But the reason I bring up K-pop is really because of one group of people that I think best demonstrate how far parasocial relationships can go. And I think it's pronounced sasangs. Sasangs are obsessive fans who stalk or engage in other behavior, constituting an invasion of privacy of Korean idols, drama actors, or other public figures. And this has, in part, been because of greed from the K-pop industry as a whole, using the psychology of parasocial relationships to make money. But it is also just mostly the fans not drawing boundaries as well, losing the idea that it is a one-way relationship and trying to make it real. I'm going to read you this part from an online article about the parasocial relationships in K-pop. Sasangs delude themselves into thinking because they've invested time and money, they have a right to pry into the life of idols. They have always been an existing problem, yet that hasn't stopped them from seeking out idols in their dorms, mobbing them in airports, or stalking them during official and unofficial schedules. They resort to these borderline criminal acts because they have the desire to get recognized by the idols and stand out against others in the fandom. One of the biggest issues surrounding Sasangs is their possessive behavior with the idols and the need to control every part of the idol's life especially when it concerns the love life of idols. When an idol's dating life is exposed in the media, Sasangs trend hashtags wanting them to leave their groups and turn to aggressively bash them on social media, to the point they are forced to write apology letters to their fans. It's completely baffling, the idea that someone is crucified by those who claim to support them just because they found love. Now, this is one of the very few things I knew about K-pop, was this dating ban, mostly because it is in J-pop as well, and my students love J-pop. 
But I want you to actually get from this is that parasocial relationships can go too far. We talked about it earlier. Sometimes the very things we do to try to feel a sense of belonging can lead to us becoming more isolated. We can become obsessed, losing time we could be spending on meaningful real-life interactions by spending too much time on parasocial ones. And this is something that K-pop groups have been going after lately, writing songs and holding chats about maintaining a safe boundary. It's kind of refreshing, actually, hearing some of the biggest K-pop groups coming out and telling fans, hey, like, we want you to help you feel better about yourself, but not replace other things in your life. I think probably the best example of a song is BTS's Pied Piper, which you don't have to know. There's no test question about these lyrics. The Pied Piper here is a metaphor to describe the relationship between BTS and their fans, called the ARMY. In the story, the Pied Piper uses his flute to play music that lures rats away, but later ends up luring the children of the village away. BTS uses this metaphor to describe them and to show the fans that they should be more self-aware about how much they indulge in BTS. It's fine if they're luring the rats, which in this point means the negative or bad thoughts in the life away, but when it becomes too much, they begin to lure you, the children, away from your responsibilities, and you should take a step back and know when to stop. And this is really the point I wanted to drive home here before we get to our last section. K-pop is such a good case study for parasocial relationships. They show how parasocial relationships can be used to make money and how some people can become obsessive. But at the same time, it also shows us the communities that can be formed by people over a central hobby, which in this case is a music group. Twitter is a cesspool in a general sense, but it has brought people who are fans of these groups closer together. It has made real-life friendships out of a mutual parasocial love for a bias or a group. And we see this in studies. Parasocial love is a strong predictor of things like forgiveness tendencies. It goes back to understanding someone else. If we feel a strong bond to them, we might feel more apt to empathize with them, forgive them for mistakes. Sure, you might have obsessives that might not do this, but in a general sense, people in society are getting a benefit from this relationship. So finally, let's get to the last part of our lecture today, podcasters. Because podcasts give us a bit of a different angle to look at parasocial relationships, or really to hear about parasocial relationships. There are some similarities to radio for sure, but podcasts require the audience to make more choice, to have more self-agency. You have to go and choose a certain podcast show, and then you go in and choose a specific episode. Radio, you get what you get. In radio, you can't play or pause whenever you want. You can't rewind or fast forward, whereas a podcast can be listened to whenever and wherever you want, stopping and starting along the way, rewinding if you miss something, or skipping if you don't want to hear something, which never happens on this podcast, right? But podcasts are an auditory experience, and this is a unique trait, something that's very different from the visual elements we've mostly been talking about so far. The podcast is able to take advantage of one of the unique features of the human auditory sense, and that there is a tendency to incorporate or fold in what we see, taste, smell, and touch with what we hear. If the podcast originates in sound, it often ends up being a more total or whole sensory experience. And this can create an immersive experience, not only because of the senses, but because of the tone. We've already talked about authenticity being a key component in making a parasocial relationship, and podcasts are very good at doing this, much more so than its counterpart, the radio. As the podcast is an audio medium, the podcast host must find a way to create this illusion of intimacy without reliance upon visually-based measures such as hand gestures or facial expressions. They are in a studio without a major audience and can be recorded pretty much anywhere the host desires, creating an already less formal ambiance for the show. Podcast hosts are also not as restricted by some of the more formal elements of radio broadcasts, including limitations of time, a consistent show format and structure, the use of advertisements, and restrictions on what can be talked about and the language used by the host. You can swear as much as you want. It can be a much more conversational tone, and people can feel like they're in the middle of a chat, or in our case, a lecture. 
and this can lead to a sense of belonging, as we've talked about before. But specifically with podcasts, we find something quite interesting, a sense of meaning. The more people listen to podcasts and we're more socially engaged with them, the higher the sense of meaning and relatedness. Essentially, podcasts are meeting some of our most basic psychological needs while also answering some of the most profound ones. But it's not just what we are listening to, it's how we are listening. Studies show that podcasts, much more than radio, lends itself to being played in headphones. And this creates a more intimate listening experience, as if someone is actually talking to us in proximity to us. Whereas radio is more live programming based and is more likely to be played out loud, getting rid of the sensation of really being there with the host. And this lends itself to something we call relational listening. Relational listening means that when we listen to a message, we tend to focus on what it tells us about our conversational friend or partners and their feelings. We engage in this type of listening when we are trying to focus on supporting another person or maintaining a relationship. So as you can probably guess, this tends to promote parasocial relationships. You feel like a friend is talking to you. And it should be said that all of the things I talked about earlier with marketing applies here. Podcasts that are really good at providing a friendship sense and come off as authentic and genuine can promote increased buying tendencies in their listeners. There's a reason that after every positive shut up and sit down video or podcast, those games can quickly sell out. But we know that this friendship aspect is happening because lots of podcasts fail or stop. It's been a while that podcasts have been around. But what we see is that people feel grief when their favorite podcasts are over. Much in the same vein that we see grief in people when they lose a close friend or someone dies. And we've partly talked about this before with something else, right? Book hangovers. It's okay if you haven't listened to that lecture. I'll go over it here because we find some of the same things with podcasts. Book hangovers are when we feel sad when we finish a book, particularly a book series. And it happens for two reasons. The first is emotional transportation, getting lost in the book or a podcast. You lose track of time and fail to observe events going on around you. A loss of self-awareness may take place. The narrative world is distant from the world in which the reader lives. It makes it possible that the events in the story are perceived as real within the story context, even when events would not be possible in reality. Maybe you're listening to a Dungeons & Dragons podcast and you're whisked away to a world in which the characters are playing in. Maybe the podcast world is realistic. You're at a table listening to Mark, Neil, and Christina, and Kellen argue about the latest board games. It's variant, but it whisks you away to something else that isn't what you're doing. We hear the podcast or read the book and interpret it as real in that moment. And when it's over, we come back to where we are. The second reason is empathy. Studies show that reading fiction increases your empathy, especially when you are emotionally transported. And this whole lecture comes full circle because by listening to a podcaster, really feeling like a friend is talking to you, relationally listening, we really do feel real emotions. We know they aren't there literally, but we a leaf that they are. And that's why we feel a sense of belonging, a sense of not feeling so socially isolated when listening to a podcast. We are with a friend. It's why parasocial relationships can give us a sense of community. We can talk with others who similarly like the same podcast or the same K-pop group. We can listen to someone that is knowledgeable and it creates in us a sense of wonder, of learning, or a new skill you want to learn. You may hear a podcaster or your favorite K-pop bias talk about a hardship they have, and you feel empathy while knowing that everyone is human. Of course, it has to be limited. I don't really want any stalkers outside my apartment, okay? But as long as we keep it in check, know that at the end of the day, it is one way. Parasocial relationships aren't necessarily bad. And that's what I want you to take away from today. These parasocial relationships are something that we want because we are human. You might hear some scary stuff about them, but really they can help us find ourselves. Feel less lonely and feel more empathy. So get lost in a book, love an idol, subscribe to your favorite podcast, because it might just make you a better person. That's it for today's class. Have a good day, everyone. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Board Game Dojo. If you liked the episode, subscribe to us and leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Twitter at the BG Dojo, on Instagram at Board Game Dojo, and on YouTube, where we review games from Asia. As always, thank you for spending time with us today. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, じゃあね!